The book of Romans, if you have your Bible, please turn with me there. Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one nearby in the, down in the bottom of the chair somewhere in front of you. I encourage you to turn there and follow along with us. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and by his righteousness and the grace, God, that we have received through him. And Lord, we dare not come to you under any other pretense or circumstance, Lord. We come to you in the name of Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the only reason why we have been invited boldly into your presence. And we worship you, Lord. We thank you for your Son. We thank you that you gave him for us so that we could live, so that we could know you as our loving Heavenly Father, so that we could worship you in spirit and in truth, and to know that you receive our worship. You love us, Lord, and we love you. We thank you for this time that we have to come before your word, and I pray, Father, that you would speak to us, God. If you don't speak to us, Lord, if you don't move by your Spirit, we will hear nothing, we will gain nothing, we will not change. And we all, Lord, want to be more like Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that you would use your Word and your Spirit to do that very thing today. Would you be glorified? Would you be exalted in here as we worship you through the reading and teaching of your Word? And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. So, as uh, I've mentioned before in the book of Romans, this is a, I just can't think of a better word than a gospel masterpiece. It's not a, a, a highly corrective letter as some of the letters that Paul wrote. It's just a wonderful explanation of gospel truth. And Paul spends the first portion of chapter 1 greeting the people there that uh, he, he knew some of the folks there in Rome he had met along the way, but he had not been to Rome yet. But nevertheless, he opens the letter with a, a, a very fond appreciation, a love, and encouragement to the people. It doesn't say, verse 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You know, he starts by expressing his love for the people there and his love for the church. But from that point, he trans- transitions into the bad news. And that's where we've been for the last several weeks. As Paul is making it clear that the whole world stands guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And it's a very bad place for us to be. And it's so important that we understand that. And even as Christians, I think oftentimes we can say, yeah, yeah, I I get that. I believe it. But I just don't know that we can ever truly understand exactly what God has rescued us from. And just how bad we really were and, and still can be at times, you know. It's amazing to me that God would save me. It's even more amazing to me that He forbears with me, that He continues to be patient with me. You ever felt that way before? And so uh, we understand God's amazing grace when we better understand just how bad we really are. And so that's what Paul is doing. Now, the style of literature changes at about this point. Chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, as I mentioned before, Paul was uh, giving a greetings to the church, and then he gets to the bad news, and he starts talking about the, the pagan idolaters and, and just how bad they are and, and the heinous sin that they were given to because they rejected God. They rejected the knowledge of God that had been given to them. And so God handed them over. He gave them over to a debased mind to do those, those wicked things. 
And at this point, Paul enters into a conversation. It's kind of an invisible conversation. So I wanted to ask you guys, you don't have to show your hands or anything, but have you ever had an invisible conversation with somebody in your mind? Maybe you have been offended or hurt or you've gotten in an argument or whatever the case may be, and you just can't get it out of your head. Every day you're thinking about this, and, and this is what I would say if I had the chance. And then you can anticipate what they would say back to you. So then you know this is what they would say, and then this is what you would say to that. I call that the invisible argument or the invisible conversation. I think probably if we were honest, we would say we all do that. And that's kind of what Paul is doing at this point. And so as Paul has made this case against the pagan idolater, this immoral person, he anticipates that the, the judgmental person, the, the self-righteous person, would stand up and say, Amen to that, Paul, you're right. Those people are dirt. They are filthy sinners, essentially. And Paul says, Yes, but who are you, O oh man, who stand in judgment of other people and you're guilty of the very same thing? And so that's the transition point there. And so last week we talked about uh, verses 1 through 4. We talked about the judgmental hypocrite. That is who it seems Paul turned his sight on in verses 1 through 4. And so he goes from dealing with the obviously immoral people to then the self-righteous people who would quickly stand in judgment of the immoral people, not realizing that before God they are just as guilty, if not more guilty. And that's the point that Paul is making there because you have the ability to assess somebody else's situation. You have the ability to look at them and say, that is one wicked person. And so then you're held to a higher standard before God because you can clearly see your own dirt. Yet somehow you look at someone else and you stand in judgment of them. And so we'll read through verses 1 through 4, just a little recap from last week. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So Paul is dealing with this judgmental person, and he's saying, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? And that's really the subject of today's message as we move farther into the text. That's where Paul is going to go. He's going to begin to expound upon the righteous judgment of God. Because you have this hypocrite here who is uh, judging these other people in a very partial way. Obviously, he thinks very highly of himself and looks down on these other people. But Paul's going to say, you're just as guilty, if not more so, but there is a true and a righteous judge, the God Himself, and you will not escape His judgment. And so that, that's where Paul will now go for the, the remainder of uh, our text here, verses 5 through 16. Paul is going to talk about the righteous judgment of God in contrast to the hypocritical judgment given by the self-righteous person. And so as we, we move into this, verses 5 and 6, Paul's going to start dealing with the basis of judgment. Now, just 
just by way of reminder, Paul is making it clear that all have fallen short. Nobody escapes. God is not partial and we were all in big, big trouble. And it doesn't matter if you are a pagan idolater or a so-called good person or a hypocrite, judgmental, self-righteous person or whatever the case may be, with God we are all in trouble. All in trouble. And so that's, that's essentially what Paul is laying out here because we all have to stand before this perfect, righteous, holy judge. And so Paul is going to begin to explain very clearly to us what this judgment is all about, who this judge is. And so verse 5, the basis of God's judgment. It says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. So the first thing we note here is that God's judgment, it is in accordance with something. It is based on something. And we're told that it is in accordance with the hardness and impenitence of a person's heart. And so that word hardness there, it's an interesting word. It's sclerotes in the Greek. And literally it means hard from being dry. A hardening that comes from being dry. And it's the word from which we get arteriosclerosis. And that is the, the hardening of veins. Literally a, a thickening and hardening of the walls of arteries. And so that's the condition of the heart. It is dry. It is hardened. And uh, another synonym for this would be obstinate. Obstinate. And the, the idea there is stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so. And so Paul says, you have a, a hard heart. It is a dry and hardened heart. You are obstinate. You are rebellious. You are stiff-necked. You are unwilling to change your course even though God Himself has pleaded with you to do so. God has sent His Son to die for you. God has extended grace and mercy your way. Yet you reject that, somehow thinking you're above it because you're alright. Because you think very highly of yourself. You can look down on other people, but you have a hard and impenitent heart. That word impenitent, it simply means unrepentant. Unwilling to turn. Unwilling to change. And that's the first basis of God's judgment here. God's judgment is in accordance with a heart like that. A hard and impenitent heart. And he says, as a result thereof, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of of God's wrath and righteous judgment. Treasuring up is simply to say storing up, saving up, building up. You know, we have an account in heaven as Christians. We have heavenly rewards. And we're told that we shouldn't be too concerned with earthly riches because it's all, it's all fading, right? But according to the Bible, there's a different kind of a bank account up there for unbelievers, for those who are under God's wrath. And it's his wrath, which is accumulating with interest, it is building. So we are in a time of history known as the church age, the age of grace. And so God is holding back His wrath and He's extending to us an opportunity to turn. We talked about that last time, the riches of His kindness and His forbearance. That is to say that He doesn't ex execute judgment at the first infraction. God instead is extending kindness and grace. He's being very patient in hopes that 
we would turn to Him, that we would repent, that we would come to Him. But meanwhile, wrath is being stored up because He is holy, He is righteous, and He cannot let sin go unpunished. He cannot let that which is wrong go unchecked. And so wrath is accumulating. It is building. And there will come a point in time when God will unleash that wrath on the earth and it will be like nothing that has ever been seen before or ever will be again. It will be cataclysmic. It will be horrific in every, every way imaginable. And Revelation chapter 6 describes for us in some detail a little bit of this. It says in verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? I mean, could you imagine that? Crying out that the mountains would collapse and fall on you to shield you from the wrath of Him who sits on the throne. The wrath of the Lamb. I thought that was kind of fascinating because you don't tend to think wrath when you see a Lamb. But when Jesus comes, He will come in wrath and judgment. He will execute God's vengeance on the earth. And people will be in pure dread and torment on that day. That is the day of His wrath. Well, Revelation also speaks of God's righteous judgment, as Paul referenced there in Romans 2. God's righteous judgment, according to Paul, will be according to people's hard hearts, their impenitent hearts, and according to their deeds, according to their actions. And so again, in Revelation chapter 20, says this in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that is God's final judgment. And we're told that all those who have died will be brought up and they will stand before God in this white throne judgment. Those who are still living will be brought before God in this great white throne judgment. And what are they going to be judged according to? They're going to be judged according to their works, according to their deeds. And that is very significant. And that's that's everybody. And it's universal. And it really boils down to two things here. You're either going to be judged by the works of Jesus, which means you're going to be saved by grace. God's judgment is either going to be on Jesus or it's going to be on you. It's as simple as that. And so you're either going to be judged for your works and your deeds or you're going to be saved by grace because God's judgment was poured out on Jesus on the cross. His righteous life that He lived that none of us could live 
And the death that he died, this innocent man died the death that we all deserve. That was God's judgment being poured out on his son on our behalf. That is the substitutionary death of our Savior Jesus. And so either you're saved by that or you are condemned by your works. Those are your only two options. And this is very sobering scripture here in Revelation when it talks about that day that no one will escape. Everyone will stand before the righteous judge and give an account for their sins. Now, I've talked about this before. As a Christian, if your sins have indeed been paid for on the cross, then you will not be judged for your deeds. They've been washed away. Your sins are gone. They are removed. Your sin debt has been canceled. It was nailed to the cross. It was judged on the cross. And now your sins are gone, never to be remembered again. Amen? Isn't that glorious? And so, that is the reality for the Christian. The Christian undergoes a different kind of judgment. The Christian will be judged based on their, their service to the Lord. Was it done for the right reason? Was it done for His glory? Was it done for the benefit of His people? Was it done in obedience to Him? Or was it done so that you could be seen? So that you could be recognized? So you could be patted on the back? So that you could get a, thanks, a thank you? You know, that's the judgment that the Christians will undergo. But we will not stand before the great white throne judgment of God and be judged according to our works. Ours will be one of reward or no reward uh, because the Bible talks about in that day that your, what you did for the Lord supposedly will burn right in front of you. Wood, wood hay, and stubble is what it is likened to. And so there will be a judgment for both the unbeliever and the believer. But this particular judgment that Paul is referring to is for anyone who has not put their trust in Christ as their Savior. You still have to stand before God for your deeds. Well, this is the judgment that is rendered. Verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So here we have two different people groups. You have the redeemed and you have the unredeemed. You have those people who have been forgiven. They've been cleansed. Eternal life has been secured for them. And they are described as people who, by patient continuance or perseverance, they do good and they seek for glory and honor and immortality. Those may seem kind of synonymous, but there, there are clear distinctions in the Scriptures. Glory. We look forward to the day when we will see God in His glory and when we will stand glorified with Him. When we pass out of this life into the next and we see Him as He is and we become, in a sense, as He is. We become glorified, perfected, no longer in this struggling body, no longer with our failures and our sin and our weakness. We seek for honor. Honor in that day when Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful. Enter into your rest. We look forward to that. We look forward to that day. And immortality. 
The Scriptures talk about mortality being swallowed up by immortality. As I already mentioned, we look forward to the day when we are no longer bound by these dying bodies. And our, our sin and our, the tears and the sorrows and all of the suffering that happens, we look forward to the day when that's all swallowed up with immortality. And that is true of the person who has inherited eternal life. That is true of the person who has been cleansed and had their sins forgiven and that belongs to the Lord Jesus. And then conversely, there's something else that awaits. There's a different judgment that God renders. And that is indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. And we're told that this is for the self-seeking, those who do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. Every soul of man who does evil, this is what awaits them. This is theirs. The wrath of God, indignation, tribulation. The word anguish, it's interesting. It literally means a narrow place. It speaks of confinement. And I heard one commentator say that there's really two forms of punishment. The worst that our government in particular gives out, capital punishment and solitary confinement. And so it could be that this is a reference to that. Jesus talked about punishment being a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, but also being cast out into outer darkness. seems as though it could be a place of total isolation and separation. And that's what awaits the soul who stands condemned. Those who would be considered children of wrath. That is their nature. They have not been forgiven. They have not been set free. Their sins have not been paid for on the cross. And everyone was in that condition before Christ. And he says to the Jew first and the Greek, it's universal. And so just as salvation came to the Jews first, so shall judgment. And ultimately, it is universal. doesn't matter who you are. And that leads us to verse 11, the impartiality of God's judgment. It says, For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So it's going to get a little deeper at this point. We're dealing with some hard things here. We're dealing with some questions that have been presented to Christians for a long, long time. And in some ways, it's, it's hard, if not impossible, for us to know or answer. And so I approach these verses with fear and trembling. I, I approach these verses with humility. And so the first thing that, that Paul tells us here is that God is not partial. He is simply not a respecter of persons. God is not impressed. Did you know that? So God doesn't look at one person and say, now that person deserves judgment. But you know that guy over there? He has some giftings that we could really use in the kingdom. He doesn't say, now that lady over there, look at all the things that she's done. She deserves judgment. But that guy over there, he's okay half the time. He's not all bad. I mean, compared to that lady over there, I mean, he's pretty good. God does not do that. God is not a respecter of persons and He is not partial. He is holy. He is furiously and dangerously holy. He doesn't look at one person and say, hey, they're not as bad as that person. He looks at everyone and says, guilty. Because we do not measure up. Every one of us falls short of His glorious standard. And so God doesn't give special treatment or preferential judgment based on merit culture, ethnicity, religion, 
so-called ignorance or so-called innocence. And that's kind of the crux of the matter here. Paul says that as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Everyone stands guilty and nobody is innocent. So essentially what, what Paul is saying here is that as he had already mentioned in chapter 1, God has revealed Himself. God has revealed Himself to mankind through creation. He has uh, displayed His eternal Godhead and his, so many of His attributes have been put on display through creation itself. But God has also written the law in our hearts and that's what Paul's going to talk about. But the Scriptures make that clear that eternity is in the heart of man. We know that there is something more to life than this. And uh, Paul, as I said, is going to go on to expound upon this as we move on, but he makes it very clear here that if you have the law, you will be judged according to the law. If you don't have the law, you still stand condemned. And I will say, and, and some commentators and, and pastors have said, conservative commentators, that it appears the Scriptures teach that God judges more severely or less severely based upon people's knowledge or, or the revelation that they have received. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, but Paul's kind of making a distinction here between people who have not received the same level of understanding and knowledge of God as, say, the Jews who had the Old Testament or even the Christians who have the New Testament. He's making a distinction and what he's saying is, is that they still are both guilty in the sight of God. Now, verses 13 through 15 here is this long parenthetical statement uh, that follows right after 12, and then I'm going to read it and work through it, and then verse 16 really ties perfectly with 11 and 12, but we'll deal with that in a second. So, in 11 and 12, God said there was no partiality with God, and as many as have sinned without the law, they will perish without the law. As many as have sinned with the law will be judged by the law. And then this parenthetical statement here, verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing. So Paul's making this distinction here. You have those who have the written revelation of God, that special revelation, that specific revelation, and you have those who have the general revelation of God. They have seen God's handiwork and that the law is written on their hearts and their conscience. And so, Paul starts with the people who have the law. And he says, look, having the law will not save you. It's not the hearer of the law, it's the doer of the law. So it's not enough to just hear it, it's not enough to know it, it's not enough to have it. And there are plenty of people in Judaism at that time who believed just because they were the recipients of the law that they were good. They were God's chosen people and they could live however they wanted to live and they were good. And Paul's making it clear, it's not enough to have the law or just know the law. You have to keep the law perfectly. And Christians can act that way. They can say, well, I'm a member at this church. 
so somehow they think they're good. Or they were born into a Christian family, so they're good. Or maybe they show up, show up to church uh, from time to time, and they're good. That does not work. If you think that it has something to do with your deeds or your actions or uh, what family you were born into or what church you attend, you're sadly mistaken. And Paul says that you have to be a doer of the law. And that is a trap because you can't keep the law. So even if you have the law, you still stand condemned because the purpose of the law was ultimately to show us we can't keep the law. Now God gave the law to national Israel to help govern that, that nation. And there were very good things about that law and there was much of God's heart that was revealed through the law. And I don't have time to get into that, but at the end of the day, the purpose of the law was to demonstrate that we don't measure up. Nobody can truly keep the law perfectly. And then we have to give an account to this holy God whose law we have transgressed. And so you can't keep a point here and there. You can't cherry pick and say, well, I do this and I do that, so I'm okay. No, if you, if you think that you need to keep one point of the law, you've got to keep all of the law. And Paul makes that point clear in Galatians 5. He says in verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So circumcision was a right. It was something that God gave to His people. It was a, a sign of the covenant. You were marked as a person who had been committed to God. And it was a big deal in the Old Testament, a big deal in the Old Covenant. But that had been done away with when Christ came. And now it was about grace. You were saved by grace. But then the Christians started thinking, well, they still needed to observe the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. They needed to be circumcised. And then came the issue, well, is it all grace? Are you saved by grace alone in Christ? Or is it grace and the law? And Paul makes it very clear, the law cannot save you. It was never intended to save you. It was only intended to prove to you that you need a Savior because you are desperately in trouble if you think that you have to keep the law to be saved. And so Paul is just making it crystal clear here. Having the law does nothing ultimately for you except condemn you. Christ is the only answer for us, folks. That's it. And if you start thinking that it's Christ plus something else, you're really in trouble. And so Paul's making the point, those without the law are still condemned because they have the righteous standard of God and they cannot keep it. And then you have the people without the law. And they stand accountable to God because they have the law written on their hearts. And that speaks to the fact that we're all created in God's image. There's something in you that knows, as I said before, that there's more to life than this. Eternity is written on the hearts of men. There's something in you that longs for justice. You see things that are done that aren't right and that righteous anger wells up within you. Where did that come from? That is you being created in the image of God. That is God's law written on your hearts. And the folks who had that law, they still violate it. They reject the revelation given to them of God and then they suppress that in unrighteousness and they break that law which was written on their hearts and they stand condemned. So Paul is just making it crystal clear. No one escapes. You tracking with me? No one escapes. Everyone is condemned. It doesn't matter who you are. And this is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we ask the question, what about the people who haven't heard? Right? Isn't that the obvious question? 
the people who have never heard of Jesus, what will happen to them. And as I've already said, you know, the Bible seems to speak to the fact that there is no such thing as an innocent person. We talk about, well, what about those innocent people over there? There's no such thing. We're all rebels by nature. Rebelliousness, sin is who we are. We are dead in trespassing sins. We are, that, that is what we do. We're not innocent people. And there's no such thing as ignorant people, according to the Bible, because God has given a revelation of Himself. And instead, man suppressed that. They turned aside from that, and they went after what they really wanted, and that was their sin. And that is still the thing that is before us to this day. That is still the condition of man. So let me just first say... Um, regarding this, this idea of those who have never heard, my, my first answer to you would be, I don't know. I think that's a good place to start, ultimately. I know, as I have said, I think the Bible makes it clear that everyone is going to be held accountable on some standard. And that standard may be different depending on the revelation that people have received. The Bible seems to indicate, as I said, that there is no excuse, there is no one who's innocent, there is no one who is ignorant, that everyone will be held accountable and God has some standard by which He will judge them. But here is what I do know. God is good. And that is what we cling to. Whatever happens, and there's things that we don't know about, here's what we do know. God is good and He will do that which is right. And when God wanted to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember the interaction that he had with Abraham, and Abraham was pleading with him. He was interceding with him not to judge that place, in particular because of his, his nephew Lot was there and his family. And he kept saying, well, what if there are this many righteous people there? Would you still judge it? And the number kept getting smaller and smaller, and finally he said, what if there's just ten righteous people in that place? Would you not judge it? And God said, if there were ten righteous people there, I won't judge it. Were there ten righteous people? No, there wasn't. There wasn't even that. And so the question that Abraham presented to God was, will not the judge of the earth do right? That's a profound question. You know what the answer is? Yes, he will do right. God is a righteous judge. He is a good judge. And he will do that which is right. And it's not my place to try to tell him what that is. He gets to decide that. God is God. I am not. And neither are you. Amen? Thank God for that. Thank God for that. He is God, and He will do that which is right. And I don't have to worry about that. All I have to do is put my trust in Him and recognize He's good, and He's got this. I wasn't there when He created the heavens and the earth. Okay? I wasn't there. I don't know what God is up to all the time. I don't need to know. If I could match intellects with God, that really makes God awfully small, don't you think? If I knew everything that God was up to and that He was doing and has done and would do, that makes God awfully small, does it not? <clears throat> so I have resigned myself to the fact that <clears throat> excuse me, God is good and God is right always and His judgment will be right. But I want to kind of close here because the more pertinent question is how will we be judged? How will you be judged who sit in this room? Because you know the truth. You've heard the truth. Clearly, there's no question. You can't claim ignorance. You can't claim innocence. You have been confronted with the Word of God, and the Word of God says that you are without excuse, that you have knowledge of your own sinful condition, and that God has been gracious to you, and He has sent a Savior so that you would repent, turn, and be saved. 
And so in verse 16, Paul refers to that day. That day, he comes back to that again, when God will judge. And God is going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It's kind of a chilling thing to think of the day when God judges the secrets of men. And that's just it. You know, God's not partial. He doesn't judge according to the outward appearance. He's not fooled like that. He looks at the heart of men and you know what else He knows? He knows the motives of men. He will judge you by your secrets. The secrets of men and women. That's a very chilling thing to think. That the day that you stand before God, there won't be anyone there to point the finger at. You won't be able to blame anybody else. You won't be able to state ignorance or innocence or anything of the sort. And God is going to look right into your heart. He's going to, he is going to judge you by the secrets of your heart, by your motives. And we're told that that judgment will be by Jesus Christ. God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus came to save. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and to secure salvation for sinful men and women. Well, He will return to judge. He will come back as the conquering King who will execute judgment on the earth. And Paul also says that we are judged according to the Gospel. Judged according to the Gospel. It's kind of an interesting thing to consider. But God has been so kind to us. That is the good news. God made a way. God made a way of escape. In light of the fact that we were desperately wicked and sinful, separated from God, dead in our sin, God made a way. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you reject that good news, you will be judged by that. You will be held accountable for that. John chapter 3 says this, verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And they will be judged accordingly. What have you done with Jesus? God's gift has been extended to you this day. And you will be judged on whether you received that gift and your sins are washed away and God's judgment was poured out on His Son. Or you will be condemned because light came into the world and you chose darkness rather than light. And that is the, the sobering reality of God's judgment. God's judgment. It is righteous. It is impartial. And uh, it is according to truth. And it is according to that which is in us, that which uh, the, the motives of our hearts. And it is according to the Gospel. So I hope that your trust is in Jesus today. I hope that you have put your trust in Him for forgiveness. And I know that many of us in here have And so we're not under the weight of this. I remember being under the weight of this, guys. I remember when I would get hit at times, seemingly random times, it would occur to me that I am in a a bad place. And that if I were to die today, I'm in big trouble. And I would try to block that out. I would try to suppress that. But God in His grace, He brought me to to a place in my life where I couldn't run anymore. I was tired of running. I was sick of running. There was more to life than just surviving. Amen? Amen. And I put my trust in Him for salvation. And now I don't live under this judgment anymore. 
I live under the loving hand of God. I live under His providing hand. I live under His gracious hand. And I want that for all of us in this room. If there's anyone in here who doesn't know that, you can know that today. It has been extended to you. It is the gift of God to us.